Well, good morning. Um, kids K through fifth grade, you guys can be dismissed to go downstairs um, for kids worship. And the rest of us, you can take that time to open up your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, if you would like to use a blue pew Bible, you'll find that on page 836. Um, well, Happy New Year. I hope you guys have had a couple just good weeks uh, in the last couple weeks to uh, rest and recharge or somewhere along those lines. Um, I thought I was escaping the tundra when I came home this past week, um, and I brought Wisconsin weather back home with me, uh, so you can direct that blame up here. Um, but thank you to George last week for preaching and bringing the word uh, to you guys on New Year's Eve. Um, but as Pastor Jeff said, this is a, as we kind of surge ahead into a new year, we're doing a new series in a new book of the Bible. It's the um, first time uh, that I recall that we're going to be going verse by verse through a gospel um, here, and uh, it's really just excited to see what God's going to do through it. Uh, I will not tell you how long we're going to be in the book of Mark, um, but just Lord willing, if he'll have us, we'll be here for a while. So it's going to be a little bit of a different uh, feel for us, but... Um, this upcoming week on Wednesday, I um, have written a blog that will be posted um, on our Grace Church site uh, of why we at Grace Church have the conviction that going verse by verse through entire books of the Bible, starting with chapter 1, verse 1, and going through the end is, is why we feel like that is just uh, the best practice of a preaching ministry. Not to say that topical is wrong or, or, or less than, but just why that, that's kind of the route we go predominantly here at Grace Church. Uh, we've done several books in the last three, four years, all different genres, Old Testament, New Testament, and I've been able to kind of talk about it a little bit here and there as to why. Uh, but this post, I'll really just able to flesh out, um, flesh out why and, and, and just kind of give some reasons as to why we think that's just going to be most effective for equipping the church and the world today. Um, but for those who maybe are new to the Bible, um, the first four books of the New Testament are called the Gospels. And they are essentially four biographies of the life and ministry of Jesus written by four different men. So um, first question you might have is, um, why does there need to be four? Like, like what, it's the Bible. Like, what, couldn't one just be enough? Like, did the first guy mess up and we need to fill in the holes? Like, why, why are there four? And there's a lot um, we can say about that. But, but simply put, uh, each author uh, portrays the same Jesus in a different light to our deep and rich benefit. It, the Gospels is about one man, but it's four portraits. Okay, so it'd be like if we had the worship team up here, and we said we, we want to see a picture painted of our worship team, uh, and we wanted four of them, and we put one person here in the front row on this side. We, we put one person up in the back of the balcony. We, we put one person at the side door here on the stage, and then we put one person kind of halfway back on this side, and we said, give us four portraits of this worship team. It would all be the same team. But you'd have all different angles, you'd have all different perspectives, you'd have distinct characteristics of each artist that would bring us a deeper, richer view and portrait of this worship team. That, that's the Gospels. One man, four portraits. And, and as we launch into the Gospel of Mark, it is a fascinating portrait. Uh, it's widely held amongst uh, historians that of the four accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Mark was written first and was actually used as a source for both Matthew and Luke when they wrote their Gospels. And it is by far the most um, fast-paced account 
of Jesus' life and ministry. Um, as we'll see, Mark has very little concern for detailed description. He, he's vivid, but he's not really overly descriptive. He's um, really vague with geography or timelines. He has no regard for real segues or transitions. He's purposefully moving things along at this kind of blur-like pace right out from the start. One commentator uh, of a book, I think it was written in the 70s in our library, uh, that's a little plug. I mean, that library is a treasure trove of books. It's free to take books out. You should do that in 2018. But um, commentator said, uh, it, it's like watching a breaking news event on live TV, like on the scene. And you have this reporter who is just trying to narrate as it goes along, and the camera is just bouncing from scene to scene. Have you ever watched like a breaking news report on TV? And you're trying to go like, what is going on right now? And then finally, like the camera focuses on this one thing, and you think you can start to see some things, but then it moves again. And now you're like, okay, what is happening? Like, that's Mark. Like, he is just going at such a fast pace where you're just like, he says the word immediately 45 times. Um, other Gospels, it's like four or five times. Like, he wants your heart rate to start rising as you read his account. And, and, and you don't really understand why until far later. But it is, I think, just a fascinating book to go through. And, and a major theme of Mark is that it's a book of paradox. It's a book full of irony. And it's this clash of opposites over and over again. That's why um, I think AJ did such a great job on the graphic for this series, right? Just capturing the paradoxical nature of Mark. Because Mark portrays Jesus as an authority figure, okay? But not just any authority. He's an authoritative servant. And then he, he portrays Jesus as king. But not just any king. He's a suffering king. So he wears a crown, but it turns out to be a crown of thorns. He has power and authority, but he turns out to use it to just serve and love others. Fascinating book. I'm really excited for getting into this with you all. So would you turn with me? Mark chapter 1, verse 1. This morning we're going to cover the first eight verses. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I'll spend more time in the coming weeks talking about this author and Mark and the kind of perspective he's writing it from, but, but this morning we begin with just his purpose. What's Mark's purpose of his gospel? Um, in ancient biographies, which is the genre these gospels fit into, the first line of the book is what we would equate to um, a book title in our modern day. Okay, so through that lens, this is Mark's title for his gospel. 
He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So you hear that, especially if you have a church background, that probably doesn't jump out at you, but there are some significant elements to that title that are worth pointing out. Mark is writing this primarily to the early church of Rome, in the city of Rome, about 25 years or so after Jesus died and rose again. It is the literal and figurative center of the Roman Empire. And right out of the gate, he proclaims, this is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. Listen, Christ was not Jesus' last name. Christ is the Greek word equivalent for the Hebrew word Messiah. This is Jesus, Messiah, the one whom fulfilled all of God's promises. But not only is he the Messiah, he is divine himself. He's the Son of God. Now, why that stands out as a book title in Rome is that um, in ancient culture, emperors of the Roman Empire designated that title for themselves. They, they, they entitled themselves as the sons of God. So in the minds of the people of God and of the church, of people who before Christ came, who were waiting for the Messiah to come as was promised, um, those were always two separate things. You had Messiah and you had God. You had God and you had this human person who would be the deliverer, who would be the one whom he sent. Because God always promised one. So they, the Old Testament's always looking forward to this one that's coming, this one that's going to save. But now this claims that this Messiah and the God who sent him are one. And so you're like, man, this is confusing at first glance. Like, what is happening? Like, it, it appears that Mark is claiming that in Jesus, God sent himself in some way. Like, how can he do that? It's like Mark is providing a first century version of what we consider clickbait in the 21st century like he wants just by his title to kind of draw you in and he lays out his purpose in such a way that he intends this whole work to be read a certain way that every verse every chapter every story and parable ought to be read in light of the fact that the ending of this story reveals jesus as the christ so it's like this have you ever seen a movie and then you get to the end of the movie, and your first thought is, oh, I need to go watch that again now. Right? Because the ending was so shocking, it was so um, surprising, you just didn't see it coming, that now you need to go watch that whole movie with the end in mind. Because now there's going to be a different way to watch it. Now there's going to be a, a more richer way to watch it. Th this is Mark telling us the ending in his title. Jesus is the Christ. The long-awaited Messiah, and now we're going to go through his life and ministry with that in mind. For the reader, both in the first century Rome, both in, in 21st century Ridgewood, no passage in this gospel will make any sense until it finds its final conclusion and interpretation in light of the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. The shocking, scandalous ending of the gospel where Jesus dies in sinner's place and then rose from the dead, conquering death so that sinners can go free. This is not an ode to someone who is dead. This is not a eulogy. It's not a memoir. This is an account of the living and true Christ who right now currently is at the right hand of the Father, upholding all things 
and is at work in the lives of those who believe. Now, that's a book title. Some of you are thinking, like, oh, my gosh, we're in the verse verse. We're going to be in Mark for 17 years. Um, maybe. Um, that's the purpose, all right? Second, Mark introduces us to the messenger. We've got the purpose. Now we see the messenger, and, and he does so by first alluding to the Old Testament, where, where God promised that, that before this Messiah comes, he's going to send somebody ahead of him to prepare the way. Uh, so his reference that we read to the Old Testament, it's actually a combination of three passages. Um, Exodus 23.20, Malachi 3.1, and then Isaiah 40. But as was common in that day, he only references the most well-known of the three. And in the time of, of, of the city of Rome, Isaiah, the prophet, was the most um, known of the Old Testament. So he says, as Isaiah says, and, and I want to read this portion of Isaiah 40, um, partly because Isaiah 40 also happens to be my favorite chapter in the Bible. Okay, so full disclosure. Um, I'm going to have it up on the screen. No need to turn there. This is where Mark is pulling out of. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What a pronouncement. The Lord is coming. God kept his word. He's not left us. He's not forsaken us. The glory of the Lord will be revealed. And this is following 400 years of silence between God and his chosen people. In ancient cultures, a king's envoy would travel ahead to make sure the roads were safe and fit for a king to travel on. And in that preparation, it would also serve as an announcement, an announcement of an arrival. The king is coming. And if we think about it, not only is that just an ancient practice, but that, that still happens a lot of times in our day. Probably not for me and you. Like, nobody cares if we're coming. But there's certain people in this world that people, like, want to prepare the way for. So when I worked in the city, I worked on uh, 42nd in Madison. And every September... Um, you had the UN General Assembly. And so down 42nd Street, right down Midtown, all along the way, they would start closing down the street uh, because that was the street that um, all the world leaders would travel down. And so I would always be reminded when, when I'm walking from Penn Station to my office that this is the time of year that it's come up again because you, you get to 42nd Street and you see people starting to gate off the street. And you see all the security personnel starting to set things up, keeping a lookout, creating this traffic flow. And what, what are they doing? Preparing the way. Preparing the way for these leaders to come. They want to make their pathway as straight as they can. And in doing so, it serves an announcement to me, to hundreds of thousands of others that are walking the streets that, hey, somebody important is about to come through. But what is so amazing about this messenger is that he's not that amazing. According to Mark, it's just a man named John. And I love that Mark provides none of the background that the other Gospels do. From the other Gospels, we know a whole lot about John, about his family, about what happened at his birth. Mark gives you none of that. He says, it was just John. 
John is among the most common names in that day. And so Mark is telling you that God does not pronounce this uh, arrival through the upper class elites of Judaism. It's not a formal announcement that comes out of the temple from the high priest. It's done by a man named John. And by the way, he wore camel's hair, he ate bugs, and he harvested wild honey in the wilderness. Like, that's all he gives you. The one who was prophesied about hundreds of years earlier, the one who breaks the silence, the messenger who's preparing the coming of the king is a dude in the desert who's living off the land, and he looks repulsive. But rather than people staying away from him, on the contrary, all the country of Judea is flocking to him. The poor and the rich, the elite and the ordinary. And this was not just a block down from Jerusalem. The Jordan River was about 21 miles east of the capital. So that would be like saying to you roughly, um, outside these doors, um, go walk to LaGuardia Airport. Which most days, that's probably the fastest way to get to LaGuardia Airport. (laughs) But let's say, uh, I googled this, we, we walk at an average of two miles an hour, I don't know if you knew that, but fun fact for the day, all right, let's say at a two mile an hour pace, without stopping, it would take you 11 hours to get there. Like, and, and ancient culture, like, that's a commitment, right? Like, I don't think they had rest stops with the Marriott and Panera along the way, all right, between uh, Jerusalem and the Jordan, and yet people went, scores of them, from all around, to go see John. Why? If it's not because he was so amazing, then why? Leads to our third point. The message. Verse 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 7, and he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This messenger in the wilderness, he's not only preparing and paving the way for the one who is coming, he's also paving the way for the message he will be bringing. A message that is primarily, listen, it's not the only message we're going to see in Mark, but primarily he's coming with a message of repentance and forgiveness. It's not a coincidence that God has John in the desert. For in Scripture, that in the Old Testament, the desert is often seen as a place of, of purification. Uh, most notably in the book of Numbers, where Israel had to roam the desert for 40 additional years as a result of their disobedience. Where, where the people of God would be tested and then indeed purified of this faithless, rebellious generation. Uh, Cliff Notes version, he wanted them to die off before the rest went in. It was sin that drove them into the wilderness for 40 more years. And then it was forgiveness and God's grace that brought them out of the wilderness and into the promised land. And do you remember what was the major landmark in the Old Testament that represented this crossing over from the desert to the promised land in the book of Joshua? The Jordan River. The same river that John is now baptizing people in. Did he baptize anyone that made it out? 
Did he say, hey, man, like, credit to you for making this trip. Like, let me just give you a little dip. Did he evaluate their good works and decide whether or not they were worthy? Is that how these baptisms played out? No. It was a proclamation of a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and it would be those who confessed and repented who would be baptized. You you see, baptism plays no part in the salvation of those who came. Nobody walked away saying, I'm saved because I was baptized. For repentance always precedes baptism. In, in this way, baptism is a visual, outward confirmation of what was inwardly true. And the process is all laid out here by Mark, that, that baptism proclaims a confession of sin, a repentance from that sin, and the forgiveness of that sin. And so just little sidebar, um, if you have not been baptized, uh, please let us know. Let, let, let's have a conversation about that. We love to kind of talk over that process and uh, what it means, and, and so mark it on the card that Jeff talked about that you can still bring to back to Grace Connect. Don't, don't hesitate. It does not save you, but it is vital. But I want us to just picture something. Sometimes you read these narratives in, in the Bible, and it's just words on a page, but, but have you ever pictured yourself in this story? Put yourself in the shoes of one who made this trek from Jerusalem to Jordan. You've grown up and you're living in the first century Jewish culture that is defined by your works. Where the pressure cooker is constantly turned up and you are pressed to obey. You are pressed to do everything right. You are warned not to mess up or to fall off track. And that just defines your whole life. Day after day, year after year, you got to be better. And you got to stay better. And you don't better not fall off track. That's the life you're in. And seemingly out of nowhere, there's this buzz that starts to revolve. That there's a man out in the desert who everybody seems to be going to see. And every description you have heard is this is a strange guy. One that normally upright Jewish proud culture would not ever want to associate with. And yet, over time, more and more people seem to be talking about him. And so it's piquing your interest. And not only that, but your next door neighbor who, who's similar age to you who has, has a similar background to you. you, you relate to each other in a lot of ways of, of always trying to do the right thing, of always trying to be perfect. And, when, and, and he went, and he's come back, and, that, and you notice, man, like, this guy's different now. He seems freer. He seems relieved. He even seems like he has some joy in his life. Like, where did that come from? The desert? And so despite the fact that this is probably going to be a long trip, I mean, you don't even know what to pack You don't know how much water you need, but there's just something churning inside of you, something pulling you to go. You got to go see for yourself. Something's happening out here. You can't even put your finger on why you want to go, but you you just need to go. And so you set out, and it indeed is a rough trip. You you get to the Jordan River, and you have blisters on your feet. You're, You're tired, and you're thirsty. You've barely slept, and you see this guy. He's even stranger than people described. And you start to wonder, man, this was so dumb. I can't believe I fell for this. Why did I even come? But then this guy starts to speak. 
and the words begin to hit you like a rock. And, and you start just feeling all this emotion, and you look around, you're a little self-conscious, you don't know if anyone, this is really affecting you, because he, he's not talking about God in ways you've ever heard about God before. He said he's a forgiving God, a, a gracious God who's quick to bestow mercy, one who doesn't need to be impressed, one who just needs to be trusted. If we would acknowledge our sin and our need to be saved, he would be glad to forgive, glad to cleanse, glad to renew. And, and something inside of you goes, man, that word renew feels better than it's ever felt before. Just the possibility of that. And, and this goes against a whole life of what you've heard. This goes against a whole life of how you thought about God. God was never one to bestow mercy. He was one that you had to impress. He's one you had to be good enough in front of, because if not, he was going to nail you with a two-by-four. He was going to come down heavy. And that's always been a struggle, because no matter how hard you tried, you never actually felt good enough. Now, no matter what other people say about you and try to affirm you, you're lying in your bed at night, and you're going, man, I just, I felt, I feel like I'm still coming up short. But you can't let that be known, because you've got to wake up and lead the next day. You gotta wake up and cover it up, and you gotta wake up and you just gotta double down and try harder. But you come to find through this guy in the desert, God is not that way at all. In fact, He's never been that way. Ever since the beginning, God has bestowed grace on His people, on your people unmerited favor, and to be cleansed is not about you at all. It's about him and his love and his willingness to cover your sin. And you hear that forgiveness is granted and salvation is received not because you're so strong. It's literally the exact opposite. It comes through the confession and repentance because God is so strong. And you see these two words that keep getting tossed out, confession and, and repentance. And they are connected, but they are distinct. They are not the same thing. Because while confession acknowledges wrongdoing, repentance takes it a step further. It is very easy to acknowledge wrongdoing, but just not do anything about it. Repentance takes it a step further and acknowledges that wrongdoing and then turns from that wrongdoing and turns toward God. And here you are, baptized into the water. And as you emerge, you can feel the weight of not measuring up, just fall away. Like it stayed under the water and didn't come back up with you. You feel the anxiety fade. And there is real joy in the God of your salvation. Finally, for the first time, experiencing real joy and desire to live for him because he first loved you. And as you hear John continue to speak, he is very clear to say, this is all possible, not because of me, but because of a Savior who is coming. There is another, and John says, he is mightier than I. This is the introduction to the Gospel of Mark. Its purpose, its messenger, and most notably, its message. So I want to conclude this morning with something we can all 
grab hold onto. We can lay on top of our lives. I mean, maybe for some of us, just the message and offer of forgiveness and that God is that way was everything you needed to hear this morning. Uh, but there are many of us who, who have confessed, who have repented, who, who by God's grace, we are saved in him. And, and I, I just want to... While this serves as an introduction to the gospel, it, it also gives us this interesting picture of a guy named John. And I think it will be fruitful for us to finish by considering church. What can we learn from John? Quickly, two things. First, let us be faithful like John. All that mattered to him was that he pleased the Lord and made much of him. His message was simple. It was clear, and it was passionately urgent that the time to turn to God is now. And you know what I admire about John is that he didn't seem to care about anything regarding his appearance. He wasn't self-conscious. He, was, he didn't care what people thought. And it's just stunning to me. I mean, just washing over me as I prepare for this, how easily I, how easily we in the church can be so fearful, so intimidated, so concerned what people might think of us if we sell out for Jesus. Like they might think we're a little crazy. They might say something. They might post something. They might not invite me to something, and that crushes us. And, and so we just can't handle it a lot of the times. And it is such a breath of fresh air when I see it here in Mark 1. It's such a breath, breath of fresh air when I see it in a fellow believer in the world who just don't care what people think about them. You know why it's so refreshing to see? Because it's so rarely seen. And when, when we just are so consumed about what people might think, we, we reveal our lack of faith in the message. And we put this abundance of false faith in ourselves as the messengers. And, and so let me just, this is what I preached to myself this week. Let me preach it to you. You could be the most cool guy or girl in the world's eyes and it'd be meaningless for the advance, advancement of God's kingdom. And likewise, we could be the most strange bug-eating, honey-harvesting people in the world and yet be the very ones God uses to get his message across. Church, let us be faithful like John. And lastly, let us be humble like John. John had reason to boast, didn't he? John went viral before going viral was a thing. Like he was the YouTube star before YouTube was a thing. All right, Everybody was coming out to see him traveling long ways to hear him, how easy it would have been for John to just be like, whoa, and start to own it, start navel-gazing, like, yeah, I am, I seem like I must have got this thing together. Look at all these people, all different kinds of people. They've come a far way. And yet, John is clear to say, in case anyone would think otherwise, he says, I am a nobody. I'm just John. There is one mightier than I. I'm doing external baptizing, but it's him. It's through the one who is coming that baptizes with the Holy Spirit, which means his is an internal washing, internal and eternal. 
It's through him that we can have a relationship with God. It's through him that a way has been made where, where, where he has done things that will enable forgiveness for all the brokenness we feel. Me included. You included. In John chapter 3, it said, John, you know, all these people were coming to him and were kind of asking him, like, hey, all these people seem to be following Jesus now. Like, your numbers are, your numbers are starting to dwindle. And John just says, I must increase. No, he did not say that. <laughs> he must increase, but I must decrease. Church, let us be humble like John. Let us resist the temptation to just raise our personal brand. Let's resist the temptation to just make much of ourselves and expand our platform for others to see. Let us keep our eyes fixed on Christ and point others to do the same thing. For when our eyes are on him, the things of this world, including ourselves, maybe especially ourselves, will grow strangely dim. And that's good news. Let's pray. Father, it feels good to start this new year opening your word with your people. Pray it would fall afresh on us all. I pray this would be the start of the most fruitful, life-transforming sermon series you have planned for Grace Church. We pray that we would make much of you, that we would feel the desire and the burning passion to take eyes off ourselves, fix them on you, and encourage others to do the same. For it's in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray these things. Amen.